Penn State Conversations is a podcast produced by the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications. Episode topics range from the people, programs, and events that shape the Bellisario College to discussing key aspects of life in the professional world for young and upcoming communications alumni. Please enjoy this episode of Penn State Conversations. Hey there, I'm Jonathan McVeary, communication strategist at the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications. I spoke with Dr. Colleen Connolly Ahern, Associate Professor of Advertising and Public Relations. She is also a Senior Research Fellow at the Arthur W. Page Center, a research center located in the Belisario College. Our discussion is a part of a collection of interviews with Belisario College faculty where I talk to them about their research and how it applies to today's media landscape. Dr. Connolly Ahern's research focuses on many areas, including health, international, advocacy, and science communication. In this interview, we talk about research on how media portrays women in hijabs, what advocacy communication means, and where Dr. Connolly Ahern looks for research ideas. Basically, I take a focus of um, often a law, often a, um, some controversy, and then I look at how the communications played out. Um, I work in multiple different um, uh, research methods. I work both qualitatively and quantitatively, which makes me um, a little bit interesting. And um, I've focused recently on uh, advocacy and refugee communications, um, obviously real world problems um, that that people are both communicating about and communications have the ability to either make situations better or worse. Okay, So we're looking at those communications and then we also look at the effects of them. I start with the communications themselves, and then I move down to see whether or not the desired effects are happening. And something that happens to me a lot is when I, I'm introduced to, a, introduced to a new area of research, I have a hard time kind of grasping the, the breadth of it. And this was no, you know, no different with the idea of refugee communications. Um, can you talk about like what does that mean? And you know, when I learned about it, it was just each little study I read about was just whole, literally a whole world of things happening um, in this area. So can you maybe explain what refugee communication is all about and the study of it in particular? Sure. So um, the last call that we worked on for the Page Center um, was specifically around refugee communications. And um, to a large extent, um, that the issue of American behavioral scientists that we did, basically prodded by that first call, was the biggest collection of communications-oriented research that was focused specifically on issues of refugees. So um, we looked at it from all angles, and by we, I mean that we funded communication um, that, that looked at portrayals of refugees, um, not just in the United States, but in multiple countries, um, not just Syrian refugees, but African refugees in Israel, for example. Um, we looked at different media, new media, refugees in Pinterest, for example, um, Instagram. Um, we, we looked at all kinds of different ways. The, the simplest thing might be news, but we looked at news um, from the perspective of two countries right on the border of the Syrian refugee crisis, um, but with very, very different cultural histories, Turkey and, um, and Bulgaria. 
Um, and we had scholars from both of those areas working together um, to try and see, well, just a couple of miles apart, how were refugees portrayed in news? Um, and I think what we we came to was a, a real understanding that there's a distinct problem internationally. It's, it's not just a, a thing in the United States of characterizing refugees in terms of victimization, in terms of their potential drain on um, on in, uh, infrastructure and systems. Um, there's very rarely any voice of refugees in these communications. Um, there tend to be pictures of them. There's a lot of drama. There's pathos, but there's not often a thread that would let people new to the issue understand the possible benefits of taking in refugees, the broader cultural context of taking in refugees, um, and, and the many different abilities that these people are bringing across borders. I mean, the idea of somebody not being powerful or helpful when they've walked hundreds of miles with small children to try and give themselves a better life in the face of hunger and cold and disease. Is that not a person that you would want living next to you? I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting that it's often framed in, in terms of a negative when how many of our families came here as refugees? So many, right? What cues do people pick up that someone is other? Um, and so that's that kind of plays into the to the work that we uh, recently did on the um, on the hijab study. Um, and so we went from, OK, we know that that people use cues um, to depict people as other. And one of the things that we know they use um, is a hijab. And what we did was look at the numbers in the United States. And, you know, more and more of those uh, American girls have hijabs. <laughs> and. Um, so do our congresswomen and things like that. Right. So our question was, well, what what is this understanding of hijab as other? How could that possibly play out um, in the United States? What, what would what could happen if we don't educate people better about thanks to being at Belisario, we uh, we were able to get um, cooperation uh, from our television studio and we created uh, news packages uh, and two of them were just like, you know, things happening to young people in and around central Pennsylvania. Uh, one was a guy that was opening a florist shop and one was a woman who was going up for I think it was Miss Pennsylvania, just just the sort of things that you would hear about young people in central Pennsylvania. And then the third um, story was about a young woman accused of a crime on a computer. Um, at least in, uh, she was supposedly alleged to be um, in contact with um, a terrorist group. Um, that was all the information that the viewer had. Um, and they saw all three of those packages, but the package about the young woman was changed. Um, and nobody knew which of the four groups she was in. Two of the groups, she was wearing a hijab. 
to the exact same woman did not appear in a hijab. In two of the groups, the woman was described as a refugee, and in two, she was described as an American citizen. And we let people just tell us what they thought about whether or not she was guilty of the crime. So that was the the final variable. Well, just with what you know, you all know the exact same thing, but you have different pictures. How likely is this woman to be guilty of a crime? And what we found was a couple of things. Um first of all, we found that we we were not terribly surprised that in the hijab condition more people thought she was guilty of a crime. But that was mitigated by um by conservative conservatism and liberalism. So the more liberal you were, the more likely you were to think she hadn't committed the crime, and the more conservative you were, the more likely you were to think she had. All right? Same exact information, so they're both having an impact of the hijab. It's just what the impact was was quite different. In terms of refugees and home homegrown, that was also interesting. Conservatives were less likely to believe that someone who was American had committed a crime than liberals. Okay? So we had all kinds of weird interactions going on. But the most interesting thing was that we looked at empathy as maybe a cause of this, right? The empathy, the idea that you can feel the pain of others, right? Well, maybe more empathetic people just have an ability to see things from another person's perspective. And what we found was really interesting. Um that empathy is not itself enough to determine it, but there is something called parochial empathy that becomes really important. And parochial empathy is the idea that I can want good things for my in-group and appear very empathetic, but I don't have similar feelings toward out-groups. And when it looked like empathy wasn't a mediator, we were able to break that up and say wait a second people high in parochial empathy so people high in this feeling that in-groups deserve more were the people most likely to think that the woman committed a crime and so what that tells us i mean from my perspective is that we need to teach empathy in a better way right um that the long-term impact of not teaching people to to regard all people as like them becomes a possibility think about it um of somebody being on a jury and taking a cue from somebody who I mean, has committed a or not committed a crime but she's wearing a hijab and we know that some people will be more likely to judge her harshly and does that seem like a thing that should be introduced at the youngest of people or into yeah. business businesses and corporations or just across the board across the board i mean i think that what we have found is that that you know i mean it's really hard to dislike somebody that you meet right <laughs> but most of what we know about refugees is mediated so we we don't know them personally we we, we may not know somebody from syria right so we have to be able to learn that and i think it does come from a very young age but we need all kinds of training in intercultural empathy um we need to to expand people's beliefs about what their in-group is it, you know from my perspective your in-group is humanity 
and then let's work from there. Um, I think that's normative and probably overbroad, but I think that at a young age, that's exactly when we should start to tackle it and start having, I mean, the more we see images of people that don't look exactly like us, the more children's programming doesn't include people that looks exactly like everybody that lives in their neighborhood, um, the better off we are. And for something like refugee communications, um, I guess I, I was going to go back to the, the corporation level of it. Um, and that, the study that I remember reading about between the newspapers and Bulgaria and Turkey, um, it was so ingrained that it was a, a cultural thing. And that just how they uh, viewed not only immigrants, but just outsiders and other religions and other people. Um, do you find it that like corporations should know better? Um, or is it just a matter of training and showing them studies like this? Well, um, yeah, I think I think we we have the problem of a lot of our research. Um, it it doesn't necessarily make it out into the public, um, and it doesn't confront people with their own beliefs. And I think that that would be important. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, the Page Center does a, such a great job of helping get our research out there um, and get people talking about it. But, um, you know, framing is a real thing. Uh, framing in news, the, the news writing is like advertising writing to the extent that it's a very short window to give people information. And so they tend to fall back on what they know their readers believe and give them whatever specific informations um, they need at that moment, right? Um, but they kind of assume a worldview. And there's a lot of education to be done at, at the newsroom level, certainly, about framing and about what they could do proactively to not fall on that in-group, out-group line. Um, just the pictures that you choose, for example, um, and the the way that you write about um, people um, rather than having them all as a big collective where no one has a face, where nobody has a real personality, where nobody um, has a child. It's just like masses of people coming over the border. You know, that's scary. But what about, you know, what about? Ahmed coming with his daughter that, you know, he's been carrying for, you know, 400 miles. And I'm glad you brought up the whole idea of the framing. Um, and I guess my question here is kind of a mix of framing and the whole idea of agenda setting. You know, refugees were in the news quite a bit. Um, can you, do you have any idea of what that crisis is today, spe you know, specifically with COVID happening, not only affecting the refugees, but also affecting their role in the news cycle? You know, when you talk about news traction, right now, people are focused on the health and well-being of their own families. And it's hard to break into a news cycle like that, um, especially because at this point, um, very few Syrian refugees have been allowed into the United States. Um, and then we have our own huge refugee issue on the southern border, um, which has been an an area of uh, turmoil in in U.S. news. But news resources are limited, right? And you've got a pandemic raging in 50 states, 
varying degrees, 50 different responses to that pandemic, um, science information that needs to get out to the public, and um, healthcare information that needs to get out to the public, and, you know, throw in with that an election, <laughs> a contested election at that, I'm surprised anything gets in the news anymore, right? And so while I will tell you that there have been, you know, some stories um, and there, the, the, um, the big fear was finally realized and some of the big camps did wind up with COVID. Um, the distal nature of it to the, to the American audience means it's very hard in, to, to, to get international news into the U.S. Anyway, it's very hard for NGOs to break in um, on an issue that probably 20th down the list for the average American right now. Um, they Even if they're empathetic and concerned and even if they have given a certain amount of money to that cause or would be willing to do so, um, it, it's a fight or flight sort of thing at this point. I think um, we're looking at world citizens who are simply beleaguered. Is there any concern or what would your thoughts be on the idea that, you know, when the COVID stuff hopefully soon does kind of start to wane, that people are just so darn exhausted with the with the news, in particular, you know, bad news? I, I do think that there's always an opportunity for smart organizations, for smart NGOs to do positive communications to the right audiences at the right time. Um, but they need to let those audiences know what they could do to help with the situation. Um, and I think that they have to do it in a way that's non-exploitive. Um, and I, I do see potential for that type of work. Um, but right now, if I was in charge of communications for uh, an NGO that was not, you know, truly uh rooted in the in the pandemic or had direct uh, impact from the pandemic, I would probably be holding my communications budget back or focused on audiences I knew were already incredibly sympathetic that would not for who for whatever reason um, continue to have interest. Right. And, and, and we know that happened. There's so much that is um, there's people in the college with way more expertise in news production than me. Um, you know, I'm, I, I talk about advocacy, but um, there's a limited amount of resources for international reporting right now. And NGOs can step in and provide information um, and provide stories and provide reasons to talk to people. Um, but they also have limited news hold. They have limited time. And breaking through the kind of crisis we've had um, is extraordinarily difficult. Oh, I believe it for sure. Um, great. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Page Center and your work with the Page Center, sure. um, you know, in addition to the refugee call. Um, first, uh, can you just talk a little bit about your role and your relationship as a senior research fellow? And um, I wanted to ask about advocacy communications and whether do you see refugee communications being a branch of that? Or are they, they separate? Um, and then also uh, about the call that, tap, that was launched 2019 and get a little update on that. Okay. Um, well, advocacy could be, I mean, you could be advocating for refugees. 
um, and many NGOs are. So, but uh, advocacy communication broader is a, a corporation or another organization um, using their power to um, advocate for a particular, a particular position. Um, it might be uh, to advocate for uh, people to wear seatbelts. Um, so it, it could be health oriented, could be safety oriented, um, it could be a social justice issue. Um, so it, it, I, I see it as a, a kind of a broader plane than refugee communications, which is very, very specific. Um, advocacy happens all the time uh, in, in corporations. Um, the corporate social responsibility um, lends itself to advocating for um, particular uh organizations or for um, causes that corporations see as valuable. Um, and those come from a million different places. You know, it could be something that the CEO just feels sort of strongly about. Um, and he, he suggests doing that. Um, the work that we um, funded on this study is just coming to fruition, partly because although normally our scholars work within a year, um, with the pandemic, almost all of our scholars were forced to move from um, teaching uh, in residence to teaching online. And the types of research we did so easily, you know, getting interviews with people and um, and, and the like became incredibly difficult. Um, so we extended the, that call. And so we're just sort of seeing the results now. The first uh, group of papers um, was uh starting to be presented um, and I know that some of the studies are um, under review at some journals and stuff now so we will we, we will be seeing the results of that um, it's just that it's not quite as far along as as we had hoped it would be well and that, and that is 2021 isn't it catching up on 2020 um, and I actually wanted to ask you about the whole idea of, of just accepting and looking at these uh, proposals uh, things that you look for. And if I was, you know, I've been doing it for a little five or six years now. Um, if I was coming into this, not really understanding your role as the moderator of a you know, call for proposals, can you tell me what you look for and, and things that kind of jump out at you as something that, like they are so different. Is it just stuff that makes you like say, wow, or are there, are there things that you're looking for? Wow is good. Um, I guess there's a, there's a couple of parts to it. So, um, the first thing is, is this new? Is this, is it, is it new and is it important are my first two questions. Maybe important first and then is it new? Um, what we're looking for is, is to have the grants make a difference in breaking new ground in scholarship. So does the money make a difference between doing this and not doing it? And that, because if a scholar isn't doing work because they can't afford to travel someplace or they can't afford a piece of equipment, then that's something we can help with. And then we can move scholarship forward. So I think that's, that's the first criteria I look for. Then I look for whether or not somebody has the ability to complete what they say they're going to do. Um, so does, do, do I see a fit? between what the person's interests are, have been, you know, because we, we, we know what the scholars have done up till now, um, is, the, is what they're proposing methodologically sound? Um, and is it something that's executable in the time frame? Great. That's perfect. Well, super. That is 
Wonderful. That's the gist of my questions. I know um, I wanted to ask you about your, your future steps here, things that you're looking at now. Um, can you talk a little bit about your, your data sets that you're excited to look at? Yeah, well, right now I am pretty much uh, living in uh, 30 second increments of uh, <laughs> sometimes 15 of um, spots that were done. Um, there are two really nice collections. Uh, Project Muse did one, and then there's one from iSpot TV. Um, so I'm looking at sort of really hundreds of commercials. Um, and sort of we're looking at them. We. I think it's just mostly my family listening to me look at them. <laughs> They've been hearing them nonstop. Um, but, you know, the first, the, the general question is, well, you know, how did corporations portray themselves and portray um, consumers and the pandemic itself? You know, um, what I'm starting to see is sort of groups of commercials sort of come together. Um, some groups um are very, very tangential. Um, people wanted to look pro-social. Um, some, the product directly was impacted um, by the pandemic or was particularly useful during the pandemic. So there's stuff from Clorox, for example. Um, there's a rather funny spot, you know, uh, from a from a toilet paper retailer. Um, and, and I watched that spot quite a few times um, just thinking about, well, why? You know, they can't even keep it on the shelves. Why advertise? And I, I realized, I was like, wow, you know, one thing that this pandemic has done is to teach people to be way less brand conscious. And when you sell something like toilet paper, branding is everything, right? I mean, it's worth what it's worth because I feel, well, at least if it's worth more, <laughs> it's because I feel a certain way about it. And they don't want to cease to be relevant as a brand just because your favorite role has not been easy to come by. So that was sort of interesting. Um, I do think that, you know, moving forward, um, getting people's reactions to these ads is going to be um, pretty important. And you're, I'm starting to see now the things I like to research, which are the controversies and the communications uh, surrounding those. So um, I'm following a story right now. Uh, one of the obviously one of the industries most impacted but profitably um during the uh the pandemic has been uh shopping uh you know food retailers um and they've rightly been referring to the people that stayed at work uh when the rest of us were sitting home as heroes and many of them have done spots um to sort of uh, I would say bolster the troops you know um you know to to make sure that their employees who are very important public for them understand how valued they are um and when you do that sort of um advertising you're basically taking a position of exemplification right you're you're saying we're we're good people we're acting morally we care deeply um and the controversy that's just starting to erupt and i'm starting to follow the uh, the hashtags on it right now uh, one of these food realers, retailers um in in one of the states there was something called a a hero tax. What they were looking for was a $4 an hour. And I, I'm not sure I have the exact right word for that, uh, Jonathan. But anyway, the, the state was mandating a $4 an hour increase for frontline workers. Um, and 
the cost was to be borne by the companies which have had mostly, you know, very, very high earnings um, during this time. And one of the very large food retailers uh, announced that rather than pay the taxes, uh, or the, it's not really a tax, but the additional salary, right, um, which they saw as a tax, um, they were closing two stores. Now, exemplification ad, and then acting in a way that a lot of people saw as immoral, taking people's jobs rather than giving them $4 an hour more, which is what the state was asking for, at a time when they had thanked them profusely for all their hard work. Well, as you can imagine, the Twitter <laughs> went insane. Um, and and so rather than with all the time spent on an exemplification ad and not for a bad reason, um, you know, the public relations aspect of not living up to those values is, is high. And now the company's got a crisis. Now, now we've moved from advocacy advertising to crisis communication. Thank you for listening to this episode of Penn State Conversations. For more information about the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications, including the latest news and upcoming events, visit belisario.psu.edu or find us on social media at PSU Belisario on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 